All right, so we're going we're gonna to start digging into this um, Acts 2. Um, for those of you who may not remember, um, we are studying the book of Acts, um, largely because of Tom Kawicki and his advocacy for this. He was, it was intense. <laughs> Actually, we, we thought, well, it was partly that, Tom. But it was also because we, we wanted to really know God's will for the church, capital C, And we thought, what a great book, since it is the commencement of the church for us to study together. And so we we uh, we set aside and are working through that. We'll have times where we'll go off topic. Like last week, Mark did a fantastic job of talking about God's call on us to be kind and to be humble, and he he shared some great thoughts about that as as well as his own experience. And so we'll go off topic. When it comes to Easter, we'll probably break away and talk about something Easter related. but we're going to be working through this again because we want to explore and clarify God's vision for his church and do that together. So that's what we're working through. We're up to Acts chapter 2, and, uh, and we're going to be introducing, reintroducing the Holy Spirit. And I say re- reintroducing because the Holy Spirit was already present in the Old Testament. Here and there, all of a sudden, somebody would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it, w- it was... David one time, and there was Daniel, and there was Elisha. And then in a moment's time, somebody would be filled with the Holy Spirit and something incredible or miraculous would happen or powerful would happen. And so there's the Holy Spirit would show up here and there, but it wasn't a constant thing, was it? It was a here and there sort of thing. And so we're going to pick up and say, what, what happens that's different as we reintroduce uh, the Holy Spirit? In fact, what we'd like to do is just, just as a reminder um, this is written by Luke, right? The guy who wrote the gospel is just really picking up from that point um, where he left off after uh, Jesus was resurrected, after he spent some time with his folks. Um, he picks that up and from John and Ron's uh, last two sermons. We, we know that that's where he's going. It was written mostly, most likely in the early 60s AD, so about 30 years after, after Jesus um, had been uh, was crucified, died, and then was resurrected. So within a relatively short span of time, he's writing what's happened in this new church. And that's what we're reading about today. And it picks up from these two events following Jesus's resurrection and his two promises. If you remember, Jesus made two promises right before he ascended. He said, you're going to get my Holy Spirit and it's going to be pretty cool. The Spirit is coming be ready. And then he said, I'm going to make sure you are my witnesses to all locations, starting with Jerusalem right here in this city where they were, to Judea, the region right around Jerusalem, to Samaria, that portion just to the, to the north, which was uh, the, the old kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then the rest of the world. Two promises Jesus made right before he ascended into heaven, and that was it. And then they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And that was chapter one. And as, as Ron mentioned, they waited. Ron last or two weeks ago talked about the great in-between, right? Of waiting. Sometimes we have to wait on God to intervene. Sometimes we wait for God to introduce the next phase of the story. And so this is the time that they're doing that. I listed the question why, because I, I thought, why didn't, why did they have to wait 50 days, right? We're going to get to the rest of the story in just a moment. But why did they, why didn't they wait just 28 days, or 16 days. Why did they wait 15, 50 days before the Holy Spirit came? 
We'll get to that in case you're wondering, why did we wait? So let's, let's dig in right there on Acts 2. And it says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And let me stop right there. Pentecost. What's Pentecost? Most of you would say, oh, Pentecost, that's that Christian celebration, 50 days, you might know that, 50 days after Jesus' death. And um, that's when something really cool happens. That's when the Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes. And you'd be right. But if you were a Jewish person, you'd miss the point here a little bit because Pentecost is something really different. Pentecost was the one of three different pilgrimage um, uh, uh, festivals that happened. And it's celebrated, if you go to Leviticus 23, excuse me, uh, 19, no, 23, 9 to 22, you read about the, the first fruits offering that you make, and they talk about this Shavuot, the, Pente- the, the celebration of the weeks. And it was a grain harvest festival. It was celebrating the fact that God had provided food for his people. It was right after, it was 50, you counted 50 days um, from the point of Passover, and that was a special day, a special time where you celebrated, again, not only the barley harvest, but the beginning wheat harvest that was just beginning at that point. And you celebrated the very first, in fact, they would actually tie a colored reed around the first uh, group of wheat that would grow up. And they would come to the temple and they would make a wave offering. You can read all about it in Leviticus. And, and there was a special time of saying, Lord is the Lord of harvest. The God is who provided for us, has provided again. Praise be to God. It was a special time of harvesting. Isn't that interesting? Interesting foreshadowing to come. So this is one of the times that you were, if you were a Jew, you were expected to show up in Jerusalem. Interesting not just celebrated in your own house, come to Jerusalem and let's see what happens. Let's keep going here. So that's what Pentecost is, bigger, deeper than just this Holy Spirit celebration that we have as Christians. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. By the way, who's the they that's all sitting there? The apostles but it could also be the 120 believers that are mentioned in chapter 1 in, in, uh, in verse 15. We're not sure exactly. It's not incredibly clear. Is it just the apostles or is it the, the believers that, that were there in Jerusalem that were coming together in a house? We believe it was near the temple because they immediately interacted with people in the temple area. Um, but we're, it's a little unclear, but they heard this violent wind that came from heaven. Now, if you were a Jew who had spent any time studying in your Hebrew school the, uh, uh, the experience of the Torah, these kinds of things would have, would have brought to mind. Let me just, you may remember that in uh, Exodus 3, 2-6, to, to God meets Moses at the burning bush, right? Out of, the, out of the middle of nowhere, here's this bush, this visual imagery of a, of a fire happening flame happening, but yet it doesn't consume. And that's where Moses meets as he discovers the great I am. Or you would know a little bit later that Moses, you know, as he's, as he's leading the Israel or leading the, uh, yeah, the Israelites, um, that God actually moves from place to place, a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of, of fire at night, the visual imagery of, of something 
fling me, right? Um, and then later on, um, in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 18, which I should have had already here, um, uh, God meets Moses and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And let me just read that to you again to help, help make the connection what Jewish people would have experienced sensorily when all of a sudden this violent wind and flame started showing up in Jerusalem. And it says this, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled when Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended uh, on it in fire. The smoke builded up from, uh, from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. Mm. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. All of a sudden, again, if you're a Jewish person who understood what happened, which most of the, the Jewish boys especially would have been trained, these kinds of experiences that were happening at Pentecost, when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up, would have said, hmm, reminds me of something. It reminds me of when God first met his people and made us a people. The Mosaic covenant happened, right? The giving of the Torah commenced that period back in Exodus verse uh, chapter 19 and 20. And it's this special relationship that, uh, that he has just before that section where I read in 16 to 18, it says this. This is God talking to, to Moses and to his people. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the Mosaic Covenant in a nutshell. And it says some things there, right? It's a, it's, we know now within the full context of Scripture that it was a temporary covenant. It was intended to help God relate to his people, the Israelites, and, and really to provide a means of governance for them as, as a nation. Uh, it, was also dealt, it also dealt largely with the problem of sin. Yes, there were festivals to be honored and things, but largely the issue was how are you going to, what's sin and how do you deal with it? It was also a conditional uh, covenant. If you do this, as you can see there, right? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my special people. It wasn't unconditional, it was conditional. And in fact, we know now, over, overlooking at uh, what's happened over the, the next couple um, thousand or 1,500 years since that was written before Acts, is that it was not upheld well, right? The Israelites would follow for a while and then they would go away and God would say, I, I think we need to have a little punishment issue here and we're going to discipline you, bring you back on. And then they would follow for a while and then they would fall off again. And that just kept happening and happening and happening until finally that Jewish nation, as you know, in 586 was, was sent away and away they went into captivity. And that really, for all intents and purposes, ended the, the nation of Israel or, or Judea. And then lastly, interestingly enough, again, foreshadowing that God has Shavuot, this notion of a celebration um, as a festival, a grain harvest festival, when in, uh, in 70 AD, the temple was, was, uh, was blown up, right? It was, it was absolutely destroyed by the Romans. 
Interesting little piece to this is if you can't bring your wave offering and bring your grain offering to celebrate the fact that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, what do you do? And the diaspora of all the Jews, the rabbis said, you know what? Interestingly enough, it was about 50 days from the point that when the first Passover happened in Egypt to when Moses brought down the, the two tablets and brought down the law, that was about 50 days. So instead of a grain harvest festival, now if you're a practicing Jew, you would be celebrating the giving of the Torah to you as a people. That's what would be important to you. Um, just kind of an interesting side note, in case you were wondering. I like history, and I think that's pretty interesting, in case you wondered. All right. But that's, so that's, that's what, again, if you were a Jewish person experiencing all this, when you were there in Jerusalem for the festival of the weeks, and this stuff started happening, there would be foreshadowing or feel pieces of this that, that brought you back to that Mosaic covenant, which you were there celebrating anyway. That's what made you a, a nation in the first place. But already in the Old Testament, God is foreshadowing the new covenant, right? Through his prophets. Let me just read a couple of those, of those special sections um, where, where God is telling us, this is what's coming, guys. Jeremiah, who experienced that, um, that uh, having to be exiled himself, wrote this in Jeremiah 31. He said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers at the Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai, right? When I, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. This is the part I want you to hear. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It won't be tablets that are carried around in a, in a big box. This is going to be now written right onto their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will already know me. From the least of them to the greatest. This new covenant is coming. It's coming in the future. We don't know when it's going to happen yet, but the Old Testament prophets are saying this, this old mosaic if-then thing, this conditional promise of God to us that we keep messing up with, there's going to be something new that, that just absolutely is, is, is immeasurably better than this old covenant. Ezekiel picks up on this in, just a, uh, in chapter um, 36, and he says this just a, a little bit later than that. He says, uh, let me read the whole passage. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This new covenant speaks to a new power, something different that the Israelites had not experienced because they just kept falling off. They're getting, they, they just couldn't figure it out, Right? But there's always this pointing forward to something better. We talked about uh, that God is better than anything this morning. We sang that together. But this is this, is this new covenant that is better. And, uh, and so that's what, we're, that's what uh, the Old Testament prophets are going to talk about. And so it's, what happens here is this, if you do, it's from an if you do this to it is already done. That's the beauty of the new covenant. 
So instead of it, it uh, excuse me, had a couple, instead of if you listen, or if you bring this, or if you follow this, or if you pay attention, or if you obey, or if you disobey, all those kind of Old Testament, um, Old Covenant sort of uh, emphases, now it moves to you are forgiven, done. You are healed. You are righteous now as followers of Jesus Christ to put your trust in him. You are mighty. You are accepted and you are loved. Some of you may say, what's this you are mighty thing? What do you mean by that? And I'll say this. It, first, or excuse me, Ephesians 1.19 says, starting in verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which is in us, which is in us. We have the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in us. So you are mighty, you are accepted, you are loved. I put those two uh, uh, boxing gloves there because I feel like the new covenant is a one-two punch. Right? It's, the, it's what happened at the cross whereby we experience the atoning work of Jesus where the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins occurred by the perfect God-man. Right? We needed that. That ushers in the new covenant, but it, we didn't have the strength yet to do it. And then God gives his parakletos, right? his, his counselor, comforter, the power that we have to then live this life in this, this new way. And it's a one-two punch of the new covenant that we get to experience here. The church started in this new covenant on Acts, on Acts 2, whatever year that was. And we get to be the blessing. We get to experience the blessing of that here. Moving from an it is done, excuse me, from a it, if you do this, to it is done. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to finish reading that Acts 2 uh, section and uh, as we continue down here. So the, the violent wind came, and the whole house where they were sitting was filled. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Something powerful came and played out in that role. What, what, what is the Holy Spirit, though? Let's just spend a couple quick minutes. So, as we know from a variety of uh, passages now, we, we have that he, the Holy Spirit teaches, convicts the world of sin, washes and renews, is what Paul said to Titus. He guides us to the truth. In John 16, 13, Jesus is describing that. He is the seal of our salvation. Let me just read that one in Ephesians 1, where it says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That's good news, folks. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see that? Who is the Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That's fabulous news. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but he equips us, each one of us, for service. 
And on top of that, he unites the believer uh, with Christ, places him in the body of Christ. Let me just read a, the 1 Corinthians passage, just so you hear this. Um, in fact, this was a little bit... Um, where is my 1 Corinthians note? All right. And it says this. Um, now to each one... The manifestations of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. In one there is given through, to one there is given the, uh, through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts above healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. We want to be a church where everybody's spiritual gifts have an opportunity to be expressed here at Mosaic. We don't want anybody on the sidelines. We don't want anybody's gifts that are going to waste. We want you to use the gifts that God has given you. Some of you have given one predominant gift. Fantastic. Let's put it to good use here. Or for another, he might have given you several gifts. And we want those to be expressed and used for the common good, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. That's our desire. We don't want anybody sitting on the, on the sidelines. And later on, he says this, um, the body is a unit that is made up of many parts, and through us all of its parts are many. They form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. This incredible unity we have through the Holy Spirit, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the, uh, the one Spirit to drink. We are united in Christ. Sometimes we don't look like it. Sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we look at our relationships with each other and we say, that doesn't look terribly united. But the promise here is that we are united through the Holy Spirit. We serve the same God, the same Spirit, and that is our hope. And that's what we need to be reminded of on a, on a very regular basis. Um, but but let's, let's talk about this. Not only is his role, but, but there's this question of, do we know the Holy Spirit? Do we know him? And it's, if you're like 60% of evangelicals, let's say that you're evangelical, 60% of you would say, actually, I think the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. It's this thing that just sort of moves people. But not really a relationship can be had with the Holy Spirit. And nothing could be further from the truth, folks. In fact, Jesus said he is knowable. In John 14, 16, if you want to move over to that, that's a, one of the passages where, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says this, and I can find it. He says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. You can know the Holy Spirit, not as an impersonal force, but as somebody who lives within us and is, is, is a separate person within the Godhead. Number two, he speaks. And actually, in this one section in Acts, which we'll be picking up here in a few more weeks, it actually says where the Holy Spirit said, this is what you need to do. And they did that because they heard the Holy Spirit speaking very clearly to them in that situation. Some of you have experienced that, where you sense God's clear voice through the Holy Spirit to do this or to do that. 
he is to be walked with. When we were studying Galatians, I can't remember which, which one of us uh, covered this section, but, but it talks about, but walk with the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. He is to be walked with. And then lastly, he is to be obeyed. When Peter was, was trying to wrestle with this weird dream that he had, remember with the thing that came down with all those animals that were unclean? He was trying to make sense of that. And at that very time, God had sent Cornelius and several of his men to go um, to, to his doorstep. And at that moment, it says the Holy Spirit said to Peter, go and answer the door, Peter. I have somebody for you. And Peter did it. He is to be obeyed. This is, not, again, not an impersonal force. This is, a, this is, this is for real. And then in Ephesians 4.30, it says this. that the Holy Spirit is grieved, beginning in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you do that? Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, not in impersonal force. We grieve the person of the Holy Spirit. I had a, I had a mentor at one point ask me, Jeff, do you know the Holy Spirit? And I said, yeah, but that question was a hard one. Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? You know, we sing and we praise God um, for Jesus and his atoning work on, on the cross, and absolutely we should do that. But I think God wants us to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit as well. And so I'd ask you that question. Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit who loves us and who guides and teaches and, and it helps us live out in his strength the calling that God has placed on our hearts? I want you to see just what our church says about the Holy Spirit, just so you know, in case you haven't gone to our core beliefs on the website, this is what we believe as a church. It says the Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Father and the Son. He is present in the world to make people aware of their need for Jesus Christ. He lives in every Christian from the moment of salvation. He provides the Christian with the power to live a godly life and understand spiritual truth. He gives every believer a spiritual gift when they are saved. And we believe that. The elders and deacons believe that. And that's what we stand for in terms of the Holy Spirit. But we also want to just share with you a little bit, because inevitably when we start talking about this and we read about some, some other things, we want you just to be aware of, of what's our view in terms of the miracle and sign gifts as well. Because churches treat that differently. We figure it's, it's useful for you to know that. What do we think about that? So let me just read to you a process, a, a document that we're working on together. This is not definitive, but it, it's had some people that have fed into this at this point. Let me just share with this in writing, or in, in, uh, as, there, as I share this. Mosaic maintains a position of openness to the work of the Holy Spirit and the expression of spiritual gifts. We must stay faithful to Scripture, yet also do not want in any way to unnecessarily put God in a box for how he may choose to interact with his children. Therefore, we are neither ardent cessationists, where the, the gifts were only for a time, or are continualists at Mosaic. We believe that God, can, we don't want to put God in a box. Instead, we believe there is room for both perspectives. 
Although we would not hold the classic Pentecostal viewpoint of a second separate baptism of the Holy Spirit after conversion, we encourage believers to actively seek the giver of gifts, not individual gifts, as if one was to be desired more than another. We believe that all spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to bring glory to Jesus and the edification of the body. We just read in 1 Corinthians, for the common good and that within the body are to be expressed within the context of orderly worship, 1 Corinthians 14. Consequently, we trust God to give us the gifts and experiences which he desires and the grace to use them in a way consistent with his purposes. As with many of our stances at Mosaic as the church body, our overarching principle is the one that St. Augustine aptly described as, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, freedom. In all things, charity. That's still a work in progress, but I hope you get the flavor and sense of what we believe here at Mosaic. And that it's a balanced approach that I would say is is both God-centric and scripturally based. And that's how we want to be. We don't want to just feel things. We don't want to just think things. We want to understand what the full context of Scripture teaches. And I wanted you to at least be aware of that as people that come and embrace this church. So who was at Pentecost? Let's continue on with, with uh, uh, Acts 2 and uh, just find out what happened. After this filling of the Holy Spirit happened, whether it was just to the apostles or all 120 believers, it's a little bit unclear. Um, but what happened at that point? Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Remember, they came for this Pentecost Jewish festival about, uh, of the weeks um, that was a grain harvest festival. When they heard this sound, a crowd came gathering together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, how are all these men who are speaking Galileans, meaning those knuckleheads up there in Galilee, how in the world would they know all these languages? It's not possible. They wouldn't know much. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and, and uh, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans from Crete and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they, they've had too much wine. Let me, here's just a picture of where they all came from, from Rome, from Asia, Phrygia, all over that Mediterranean area in the known area of, the, of that particular area of the Roman Empire. They were coming from all over the, the place and they were there to celebrate Interesting possibilities come out of that. And so in response to those, those, those questions, Peter gets up in the temple area and he starts preaching. Now there's 20 verses, 22 verses. I'm not going to go into depth on all of those. The gist of it is this. He says, Joel pointed to this moment in time. Five to 600 years ago. Think of that. Five to 600 years ago. That would be like from 1500 people prophesying what was going to happen today. Joel back then said this, guys, and he, he, he describes exactly that in this moment there, that God would pour out his spirit on his people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So it's not just gender-based here. Men and women, doesn't matter. And not only that, but he says, you're young men and will see, visitor, or see visions and your old men will dream dreams. It's not age-based. 
My spirit is going to be poured on all of you. And then he says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. In those days, it's not, so, it's not based on social status. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. And that's what's happened today. That's what's happened today, Peter is saying. It's not about drinking too much wine. Come on, it's only nine o'clock, he says, I'm sure with a, with a wry smile on his face. Something special is happening. And so he, he quotes that, and then later on he says, he, he, he establishes Jesus' credibility, not only through the wonders and signs that people knew about. People had heard about Jesus, this guy who was doing some really cool things up in that area, up around Galilee and, and uh, Bethany and other places. But not only that, but God raised him from the dead. Y'all can't forget that, guys, Peter's saying. Don't forget, this guy came back from the dead. And then he quotes two, chapter, two passages in the Psalms from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, where David is already prophesying at that point, too, that somebody greater than him from his own lineage would actually come and be the Messiah. Peter's saying, Jesus is for real. And this has been prophesied for years and years and years. David's prophecy were a thousand years before this, pointing forward to this moment in time. But I want you to take special notice of that section right there in verse 24, if you have your Bibles open. He says, This man was handed over to you by God, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This didn't surprise God. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now he's speaking to the Jewish folks that are there, that are assembled in the temple area to do their, their grain harvesting offering right there in front of it. Um, and he says this. Now, let's be real clear. Yes, some of those people were participating in the crucifixion, but I think all of us know we all participated in that crucifixion, right? All of us were responsible for nailing Jesus' hands and his feet to that cross. We all, as, as sinners, were part and parcel of that, of that event, but look at that next verse. So at the worst possible time, and again, remember what just had happened 50 days before that. At that point, the disciples were going, all is lost. The person who I said I was going to follow to the last day of my life has been killed. It couldn't have been any worse. The one person I was putting my hope in for a, a messianic political, um, here we go, this is going to change everything, we're going to get rid of Rome, everything is lost because my guy is dead. I don't even know where I'm going to live. Do I go back to being a tax collector? Do I go back to being a fisherman? What in the world am I going to do? Life is about as dark as you could possibly imagine for those apostles and other, uh, other believers. It's lousy, Right? Now, some of you may be in that experience right now. You may be looking at your life saying, I don't know if it can get any worse than this, or it's been a prolonged mess, and here I am sitting in the same wallowing spot where I've been for ages. It stinks. Our circumstances can look that way, can't they? And then it says in verse 24, but God, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death. In that moment when things were the darkest for the, for the disciples and the, and the followers of Jesus, at that point, God did something amazing, right? In the impossible, impossible situation, God showed up. So I'd ask you, what's your God but God's story? 
And have you shared that with somebody recently? I'm guessing all of you have had those moments where you go, that's only, that only happened because of God. And I could, I could tell you about the time that God showed up for us and the reason why Cheryl and I are, are here in Lynchburg, Virginia. That's a but God story. I could share with you what God has done in my kids' lives where it's like, that could only happen because of God. That's too crazy. Oh my goodness, that is so cool. Maybe some of you have those experiences. Let me tell you about one other. There was a, three years ago, my sister-in-law passed away unexpectedly. Drowned. Wow. Not expected. Devastating. Out of the blue. So all of my siblings and I, we descend on Dayton, Ohio, and memorialize my sister-in-law. And there's a bunch of family there. And the, the morning actually is Easter morning. And we have an opportunity that morning for my nieces and nephews of my oldest brother. They actually asked to be baptized. Kind of a sad, weird sort of thing, but they, that really moved them to get baptized. And so behind me is my next oldest uh, sibling. And uh, he has been struggling for a long time. Like decades and decades of real struggle has walked far from the Lord. As he's watching my nieces and nephews get baptized in a less than sober state, he feels God's call in his life to go and get baptized and give his life over to the Lord on a Saturday morning, excuse me, on a Sunday morning in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was just, why? Wow. I mean, you can imagine for our family, the rejoicing that happened after we'd prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for, for my brother. That was the moment, the impossible moment where God showed up and he's getting baptized. And boy, has that changed his life. God does the impossible sometimes. He shows up and he says, those things that you thought were impossible, that's the one I love doing my thing, right? The battle is mine, guys. What's your but God story? And have you shared it recently? Have you shared it, have you preached it to yourself and said, yeah, all these circumstances may be tough, God's still at work. God's still at work. So what happened that there is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? We're almost done. So one thing is that uneducated fishermen were equipped to preach and teach. Peter did a remarkable job. In fact, he preaches a little bit later to, to uh, the, the Sanhedrin. And boy, he nails it. This unschooled fisherman dude is just, just doing incredible things because of the power of the Holy Spirit in him. Disciples no longer are orphans through the promised Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said to his, to his people as they're thinking, wait a minute, you're going to leave Jesus? He says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're not orphans. We're not orphans, folks. That's good news. People from all the world, known world, heard the gospel. Remember all those places? They came from all over the world because God's timing was perfect. He waited until Pentecost when all these people were there for the grain harvest to say, now I'm going to show up because watch what happens. Hearts were convicted. 3,000 put their trust in Jesus. That day, it says, right there in Acts, right at the end of, near the end of that chapter, the church exploded by, get this, 2,400%, just like that. And... Because they were there for that pilgrimage, they went and scattered. Think about the effect of that on the church, this brand new church that had just started. God chose the perfect time, and he said, I'm going to make people believers here. My spirit is going to do fantastic work. 
and then I'm going to disperse them to all the places around the Mediterranean. Pretty cool missionary idea there, isn't it? And then Jesus' promise of being his witnesses were immediately fulfilled right then and there. The two promises he said, get ready, guys. Two things are going to happen. You're going to get my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to send you out as witnesses. Just like that, within a few, few days, that's exactly what happened. Jesus' promises are true. They happened just like that. Do you believe Jesus' promises for you? God's promises for you. So where, where the new believers are going to, just as a reminder, they're going back out to all these locations and they're going to be preaching themselves and teaching what, uh, to their fellow uh, Jewish brothers and sisters at that point before, again, nine more chapters when we get to Peter and Cornelius and all that story about the Gentiles, which we get to benefit from. So we've been talking here about Acts and God's vision for the church, capital C. And what are we seeing here so far? After just two chapters, not even two, because John's going to come and cover one of my favorite passages at the end of chapter two, we see that we are a body of indwelt followers operating with new hearts of flesh. Not stone any longer. We have a new spirit in us, something they didn't get to experience back, you know, centuries and millennia before that. Now they get to have new hearts of flesh under this new covenant. And that we are called to share our faith and make disciples in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Right away, what happens is the Holy Spirit indwells them. They start teaching and preaching, right? They start sharing their faith because they can't help but not to. They are compelled by the love of Christ, as as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, um, that we can't hold it in anymore. When we've experienced the grace of Christ, oh, we just have to share it, right? So three questions I'm going to ask you as as a takeaway today is this. What's your relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit? He's not an impersonable, in, in, he's not just a force. He is a person, a person of the Godhead. We get to experience him and be in relationship with him. Secondly, what is your but God story? And have you shared it recently or heard somebody else's? Ask somebody, tell me about your but God story where God did the impossible in your life and be encouraged by that because we need that regular encouragement, Right? as iron sharpening iron. And then lastly, who do you sense God is calling you to make a disciple? The teaching, the sharing of your faith. Who does, who does God keep bringing to mind as somebody that you need to be sharing your faith with? In a winsome way, not in a pounding, pounding, pounding way, but in a winsome way, how might, who is it that God keeps laying on your heart to share your faith with? Whether it's somebody at work, your neighbor, maybe somebody in your family, who is it that God is asking you to say, share your faith with? Because what we see right away here in this very beginning of the church is that, again, we see this indwelling of the Spirit, this new covenant thing that's starting to play out and this changes them, but, but they start sharing their faith right away. And that's what as a church we must be doing. We must winsomely be sharing our faith. And I'm not going to get up there and say, you ought to be sharing your faith with three people you know, every week. That's, that's, I don't think that's a God thing we should be soft to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, who do you want me to be speaking to this week? Holy Spirit, who should you, who are you preparing for me to have a conversation with them this week? And maybe it's the whole thing that I'm sharing, the whole faith that I'm sharing, or maybe it's just one more part of that person's journey as they come to Christ. Who is that? Are we a people that, are, that live by faith? 
are known by love, and are a voice of hope in our community. That only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit, folks, as we trust and rely on him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you gave us the Holy Spirit. You did not leave us alone, that we have the person of the Holy Spirit who gives us hope, who gives us strength, who reminds us, who teaches us, who guides us, who uses us, who makes us one. Lord, that is what we need for today. So, Father, we do pray that over the course of this week, we would be so malleable and soft to your Spirit that we would sense your Spirit's guiding. Lord, we pray that for each one of us, we would live out the gifts that you have given us. We would not waste them. Lord, for your purposes, for the good of this church as well. Lord, watch over us this week. Make us mindful of this, this awesome new covenant we get to experience through you. And I pray that we would rest in that. And we would rest in your finished work of Jesus at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.